I can't. It's getting worse and worse. Let's start. Any? Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Betsy Raffetto. Betsy? She's a parishioner here, and she's not doing well with her cancer. I'm sorry. It's, it's not she's not doing well? No. She's Betsy. Betsy Raffetto. Okay. We've got a good number of people out tonight, so and one of them is Mike. We just learned that he's come down with COVID, so he's online, but, um, oops, holy cow. Sorry, sorry. I don't want to lose sight of you, Melody. <laughs> Somebody's got to keep an eye on you. Um, she likes to come to the movie night. I hope. Yeah, she came yeah. last time, so tell her it's November 7th. Did you hear, Mary? No. Um, she's saying, you be sure that you're here on movie night. It's November 7th, because we will all be glad to see you again. Oh, thanks. And you know, and anybody in that same situation, you know that you and your husband are welcome to stay for us with us that weekend. Um, we'll take you out to Kirby's, you know, our son's manager, and, and you pay, and you pay. Let's start. Any any more prayers? Sick. Um, oh yeah, I'm gonna for sure. For sure, for sure. Say her name again. Betsy Ruffetto. Let. Yeah. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I want to um, make this prayer um, a special thanks, a prayer of thanksgiving. It's to Mary. Um, so I'd like all of you to know that the frame of this prayer is her and to her. Mary, thank you for all of your prayers for us. Um, they're constant. It leaves me in constant, oh God, Dante's line. It leaves me in constant amazement. There are millions of people praying to you daily all over the world. To imagine how you manage that, I, I can't get my mind around it. There's that wonderful line in Dante that we've gone back to a number of times, um, where natural law doesn't exist, the rules of time and place um, aren't there. Um, we read that line together because it's always stunned me. Remember, natural law doesn't apply in God's kingdom. So it's a different order of um, causalities. It's a different order of causes. God is infinite. Um, human beings are in an infinite space. And if that wasn't complicated enough, Christ, you Christ, complicated it more by taking on a finite body and then taking it back. How you square a finite body with an infinite nature as a son um, mystifies it. It's one of the few things that makes sense for adoration for me, that you are present everywhere to be adored. Um, your nature is infinite. It's like the multiplication of fish expanded infinitely. Mary, for all your prayers, how you do that, um, um, I want to express a personal sorrow for um, Sorry, 
praying to you always and feeling my shortcomings always. Um, that you're willing to receive our prayers and take them to Christ so that we can help bring Christ to all that we do the way that you did for us. So, special thanksgiving. Um, receive our prayers tonight um, for those loved ones. Let's see. Betsy. Um, pray for Betsy um, that she recover and um, that whatever happens with her treatment, that this ordeal that she faces brings her closer to you. Let that be so for all our ordeals. Let us be strengthened in our faith, not give in to anything else. I ask a special um, prayer for Amy, our daughter, who is um, flying to India and passing through an Arab world. And um, for Christopher, who's starting a new job. Um, pray for both of them, please. My special prayer tonight is for um, everything that's going on in Israel. Let your divine justice unfold. Um, whatever the cost in lives, um, help us to hold on to um, our heritage, our past, our principles, our beliefs. Um, let the savagery and the barbarism of those attacks be answered in the best way that we can without giving into those things. Um, let us engage this war holding on to the very best that we can. Um, um, pray for all the people in that area and for peoples all over the world who are going to be affected by um, the two sides that are engaged. Um, Christ, um, be present. Father, be present in all that's happening there. <laughs> There's signs of apocalyptic things. We have to be careful of going there, but um, help us to take care in all that we do with that war. Um, I ask a special blessing again for all that we're doing here. Um, let all that we do strengthen us in our faith, our courage, Help us to become better defenders of our faith, to understand it, take it more effectively to our world, take evangelizing very seriously. So let all that we're doing together deepen our powers of reason and our faith. Help us to take them to everything we do and all that we do in this world. Oh, yeah, um, I mentioned this last week. Um, Watch over the Synod, um, and I ask a special blessing, a guiding blessing for Pope Francis, um, for all that happens in the Synod, especially those things concerning our sexuality. Um, help us to hold on to um, um, the long, rich tradition um, of our faith in these matters. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, let's start. I, I've, <laughs> I, I think I sent you a letter, but I'm not, I can't remember. My mind is going. Last week, after I read, I'm going to read Stopping by Woods again, because you were also shocked at what I said that I want to read it again. 
But I want to continue with Frost, so I don't want to just stop there, but it'll give me a chance to go back. We read the oven bird, remember? Tonight I want to read one of the bird poems. Remember I've said, all the poets, from Homer on, all the poets look at birds as poets. They're singers, they're prophets, they reveal heavenly, because they're closer to the gods, they reveal things to us about the gods that we can't know without them. So birds have always been images of prophetic figures and poets, most great poets have written bird songs. We're going to read a number just in case that's not clear. I want to make it clear in the next month or so, but we'll read a number of bird poems. We read the oven bird, remember, and it ended with the, the speaker saying, the bird would cease and be as other birds, but that he knows in singing not to sing. The question that he frames in all but words is what to make of a diminished thing. Luis and Tim, you got the copies of the poems, yeah? Did you get? Okay. Um, there's that disclaimer, is what to make of a diminished thing. That's like the ending of um, Clean Well I Would Pay, place. Must be insomnia, because remember, many must have it. So it's a dismissive, it's a sort of toss away with the understanding that more is going on than the line says. So it's as if it implies there's a far greater meaning here, but we don't hold on to it anymore. So there's this disclaimer. It's in pause, it runs through Frost, it runs through Hemingway, runs through a lot of modern poets. Um, we're gonna read it, we're gonna come to it again in a minute in Birch's, but I wanna sing another, or I'm gonna read another bird poem. Never again would birdsong be the same to reinforce this idea of what Frost is doing. So I'll start with that. He would declare and could himself believe that the birds there in all the garden round from having heard the day-long voice of Eve had added to their own an oversound, her tone of meaning but without the words. Admittedly an eloquence so soft could only have had an influence on birds when call or laughter carried it aloft. Be that as it may, she was in their song. Moreover, her voice upon their voices crossed, had now persisted in the woods so long that probably it never would be lost. Never again would birdsong be the same. And to do that to birds was why she came. So he's letting us know that the fall through Eve is present in nature, and the birds give us some sense of that. So when we hear birds sing, we're meant to hear something of a lament, that the fall is with us, and we hear that in the bird's song. So that's two bird songs we've read, okay? Now I want to read Birch's just to reinforce this point of um, disclaimers, and then I want to go back to Stopping by woods on a snow even. But Birch's is one of um, Frost's best poems, favorite. And last time, I think I shocked you again by telling you that lots of Frost poems that are about a certain subject, birds, stopping by woods, of, um, whatever it is, are also about poetry. That so many of his poems are about poems, poetry, and he's aware of that. And one of the things I want to impress on everybody tonight to make this really clear, most of you should feel it by now because we've been doing literature long enough. One of the, one of the 
things that literature gives us at a special mode of knowledge, it's a special way of knowing, is a knowing by analogy. So that whatever is presented, it can be Santiago at sea, whatever is being presented there also has another level of meaning. We've been seeing that from the very beginning, particularly in Dante, but every, every artist we've read, there are multiple levels of meaning. You know that. So, and we, we remember when we did uh, departures, stones which are in, in our in, inert, un, they don't speak, they're not speaking things. Stones have meaning, they speak. I remember that discussion very vividly because I thought it was wonderful. There's a book by Annie Dillard, also a wonderful scientist, called Teaching, Teaching a Stone to Speak, I think is the name of it. It's a wonderful book, wonderful book, Teaching a Stone to Speak. So while we're reading Frost, it's important to keep, or at least to be wondering if there's an analogy that's at work in the poem that we're reading, okay? So I want you to keep that in mind as I read Birch's, okay? Because on the surface, it's about a young boy who's not doing what other boys do. He's not playing baseball, he's not going through conventions, his parents are not bringing him up like other kids. This kid is different. And one of the ways in which he's different is by, by bending birches to help them become better. Because in winter storms, birches can be covered with ice and crack and break. They can be destroyed. Okay? So on the surface, it seems that it's just nothing to, nothing to it. It's about birches. But is there an underlying meaning? Okay? Birches. When I see birches bend to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them, but swinging doesn't bend them down to stay. Ice storms do that. Often you must have seen them loaded with ice on a sunny winter morning after a rain. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises and turn many colored as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Soon the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells, shattering and avalanching on the snow crust. Such heaps of broken glass to sweep away, you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. They are dragged to the withered bracken by the load, and they seem not to break. But once they are bowed so low for long, they never right themselves. You may see their trunks arching in the woods years afterwards, trailing their leaves on the ground like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair before them over their heads to dry in the sun. But I was going to say when truth broke in with all her matter of fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have some boy bend them as he went out and in to fetch the cows. Some boy too far from town to learn baseball, whose only play was what he found himself, summer or winter, and could play alone. Sorry, I'm gonna interject this. Imagine today how many kids grow up watching TV all day long or computer games. And the mechanized world they step into without knowing it and how many of their parents just mindlessly let it go because they've got an easy babysitter. Kids grow up that way. Frost is making clear whoever this kid is, he does not belong to that world. Okay, he's not in town, he's not doing what other boys are doing. Project this forward from Frost time to our day or computers and, you know, things like computer games have taken over. 
some boy too far from town to learn baseball whose only play was what he found himself summer or winter and could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by writing them down over and over again until he took the stiffness out of them and not one but hung limp, not one was left for him to conquer. He learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the same pains you use to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. Then he flung outward, feet first with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So was I once myself a swinger of birches, so I dream of going back to be. It's when I'm weary of considerations and life is too much like a pathless wood. When your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. May no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow white trunk toward heaven. Till the tree could bear no more but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches and cotties. <laughs> Those disclaimers are. Okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to leave it. I just want to make this comment. One of the questions that I want to ask, and I don't want a discussion on it right now, but how much of this is about poetry? Um, of learning to go, and it's going to be one of the questions I'm going to ask when we do about, um, when we do um, old man. Because it's about an old man going out too far where other people don't go. And in that, this is going to be my final question because I want to save some time for us to actually look at this question. What does one experience there in that moment, out too far? When you're a swinger of birches, you have to go just so, because if you don't, you'll crack it or you'll leave it susceptible to the snow still. So you have to do it just right. You have to go to the top just right. You have to bend down just right. And he says, whoever this poet is, the speaker here, doesn't seem to believe in heaven. Love is the right place, or earth is the right place for love. Okay? He doesn't hold on like a Christian to a sense of an afterlife where everything will be okay. This is where we learn to love. By the way, you almost can't become more Christian than that. Um, may no fate willfully, willfully misunderstand me and have grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. He'd like to go by climbing a birch tree. So, how much of this going just so far and farther, because if he doesn't, if he goes too far, he'll crack it. If he doesn't go far enough, he'll leave it susceptible to storms. He has to go just that way and climb toward heaven till the tree could bear no more. How much of a poem can he push that's faithful to this world without asking more of it than this world will allow? That's Hemingway's world. We're in the modern world. Did everybody understand that? Wish I could, wish I knew what I said. 
could repeat the words. All I know is that it was right. Help me out here. Somebody help me. It was brilliant. I, Melody, what, what are you? You can't count on heaven. This is where we have to love. So how far can he push a poem to get as much out of that meaning without assuming more and still leave us knowing that this is what we've got to do? Break birches to love just the right way. Because we all know that we can love the wrong way in two different ways. We can excessively love and, and enable. We've talked about that. We can love insufficiently. Not love enough. So even though he's talking about birches, and he clearly is, that remember, he's always focusing on nature. He also has on his mind something more. Okay? So let me let me stop with that. And now I want to go back. <laughs> Stopping by woods. You know what that reminded me of? Go ahead. The boy in the woods with the birches. Mm -hmm. uh, Hester's child. I forgot her name. Pearl. Pearl. Yeah, go. She had to play by herself. Yes. Yes. Always. Always. Yeah. And she grew up with a different sensibility. And it helped, I think it helped Hester in lots of ways. Yeah. She wasn't going to be like other girls. And remember, am I remembering correctly? Remember, Hester left with Pearl. And Pearl stayed abroad and married and did not come back to that world. Stopping by Woods. Okay, let me just say, partly in defense of myself here. <laughs> la, la, I, I've got to ask pardon here. Last week, you know that after I read Stopping by Woods and was asking you what it was about, everybody looked sort of dumbfounded, and then I said it was about suicide, and all of you gasped. It was at that point that I got kind of playful, <laughs> because I've spent my life teaching this poem, and I've told you, I saw it on a Christmas card, which shocked me, which shows how badly people can read Frost. Frost is a pastoral poet on the surface. He's, he's dealing with the pastoral world. It's a world in nature. But underneath his poetry, this pastoral surface, he's dealing with very dark things. That's, that's, what, that's what really has established him as a great poet. And Stopping by Words is, is, Stopping by Woods is one of those poems, and People are innocent enough, and I was sort of laughing because nobody, Chuck, um, oh, you know, I'm sorry. Lord, watch over Chuck, sorry. Watch over Chuck on his travels, keep him safe, please. Sorry, Lori. Um, Chuck said it's about death, and it is. Um, but I want to go back and qualify my comments so I can take some of the shock out of your systems here. Stopping by woods on a still evening, evening. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds, the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but, but, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep and miles to go before I sleep. Let me read my note on this because I want to make this 
I want to. Remember, we've entered modernity. So, in, for many people growing up after Darwin and Freud and Marx, we've talked about this. Um, God's gone, he's dead. And the world is meaningless. Man is a product of forces over which he has no control and cannot understand, even if, even if he pretends he can. If we're a product of evolution, we don't know what our beginning was, we don't know our end, we don't know our nature. We have no nature anymore, as a matter of fact. Everything's in flux. Um, or we're a product of perversities, Freud, Oedipal complex, or um, polymorphous perverse, different forms of perverse sexuality, or Marx, economic forces that rule us and that will determine our end. Every one of those ideologies is rests on a form of determinism. It can't be other than it is. All of them deny man's free will. So we've entered the modern world, we read those three poems, of, or three short stories of Hemingway, and now we're going to go into Old Man. And I read Stopping by Woods last week, and everybody was shocked. So let, let me, I want to read a note on this that I, um, I'll probably send it to you, but it's in our notes today. The death or suicide at issue in Stopping by Woods is not motivated by despair. That's not what's going on with this man, the speaker. We, don't, we get no hint of any despair. He's not like somebody wanting to put a gun to his head and kill himself. That's not what this is about. He's not motivated by despair. What motivates the speaker is he contemplates the seductive peace and beauty of the field filling up with snow is more along these lines. Human beings bear the sometimes painful burdens of consciousness. They are aware of a discrepancy between themselves and not just an unconscious nature, but of worldly problems, right? The trees are not, the field is not aware of any of what we as humans carry. That man's looking at a field aware that it's unconscious, that it does not bear those burdens. It's lovely, dark, and deep. The easy wind, the that downy sweep. It's presented as feminine, very seductive. As the speaker contemplates a nature distinct from himself in having an unconscious character and a freedom from burdens, for a moment he considers giving into it, letting himself go. The force of all the phrases and the but on which the action turns reinforce this contrast. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. Their seductive character is reinforced by the easy wind and downy flake. But he's a social animal, remember the horse reminds him of that, and he has miles to go before he sleeps, mi repeated miles to go before he sleeps. This, this man is a man who carries social burdens. He's used to going to places. The horse knows that. We know that. Um, the underlying or governing intuition of the poem, what gives rise to all the speaker's thoughts and feelings, is this tension between the burdens of consciousness and a nature free of them. Nature's strange indifference to man's predicament. That he has a consciousness and is aware of death when nature's not. Nothing seems to happen outwardly, but inwardly a great drama is taking place this darkest evening of the year. Now, I, hope that, I hope that helps settle some things, <laughs> because it's not a despair. That is not the suicide. But clearly Frost is, is showing a speaker aware of the difference between a human being conscious of things and bearing burdens and a nature not. 
And he feels the seductive pull of that in watching this field. So if I seem to exaggerate last week, pardon me, but, but I think it's important to see that this is a moment when a real drop, nothing seems to be happening. But this is a moment, and frost concern, remember, is always nature's, this pastoral world. But this is a moment when he's making clear how seductive it is to be free of those things. Because otherwise we diminish the, the meaning of that but. But I have miles to go. Miles to go. So that, that turn gives point to the drama. Okay. So I want everybody to be clear that what I mean, pardon my playfulness last week, but this poem is, is about that kind of moment when a human being is, it sets himself against nature and realizes the temptation to give it all up, but won't. He says, but. Sorry. Yeah, but to see you, go ahead. I just, just wanted to clarify for my understanding. So he does, he does get seduced by that, but he has to continue. He but he what? He has to continue. He has, Sorry. Promises to, he has promises to keep. Right. He has to continue going. Right. He has to leave that beauty. Right. There right. Right. Burdens. Right. To put it in very simplistic terms, to me, this is a winner version of someone who really wants to stop and smell the roses, but he cannot allow himself to because he's got all these things that he must do. Yeah, the only trouble that I'm having with that, uh, man, is that. Smelling roses is a aesthetic pleasure. What this speaker is contemplating is sleep, death. Death is at the center. But I have miles to go before I sleep, miles to go before I sleep. He looks at this as, um, yeah, we have to see this in terms of a death, that, that the speaker is aware of death and how seductive it is to give, your, to give it all up. But he doesn't. Um, so there's a, there's a dark side to this pastoral world and my only reason for lingering in this is because Frost is so deceptive and people, they can put stopping by woods on a Christmas card. Um, Frost, Frost presents a pastoral world and it's so easy to read. Think about the bird poems that we've read. The one we read today has got Eve haunting. The other one was what to make a diminished thing. We've lost Eden. We carry that, in fact, that's where I'm going to go. This is our poem. I haven't even gotten to my opening remarks. God. God. Pray for me, please. Anyway. Um, oh God. Just um, pass that on to Chuck. Because, you know, when Chuck said death last week, I thought he was right on. But I want to be clear that the, the death that's at issue in this poem is very subtle. It's not suicide like somebody wanting to kill himself, overdose or, you know. It's not that. It's much subtler. It has to do with the difference between a human being and nature. It's fundamental here. It's a wonderful poem. And I'm going to, because I'm going to ask you guys to do some reading, I'm going to, short lesson here. This is a you know from our work on Shakespeare and some of the other poems that all, most traditional poetry rests on a form of measure. Two beats, four beats, you know, whatever it is. 
Um, most traditional poetry is written in iambic tetrameter, five feet of iams, and iam is a rising foot. Da 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 da. That's Shakespeare. Every poem of Shakespeare we read, we read rests on that iambic pentameter meter. But you know you never read da 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 da. So Frost stopping by woods is iambic tetrameter. It's got four feet of iam, and iam is a um, an, uns, an, uns, an unstressed syllable, stress, unstressed stress, unstressed stress. So it's da 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 da. Those are iams, four, four feet of iams, okay? So if you read it according to meter, you'd go, whose woods these are, I think I know, right? His house is in the village. Are you all following? They're absolutely iamic. They're, they follow a strict musical pattern. To, he will not see me stopping here. Is everybody following? Those are strict I, I am's, four of them per foot, to watch his wood. Do you read poetry that way? No, you read it rhetorically and let the underlying music carry you. It's what, it's what gives poetry part of its power, that musical quality. So you don't read it whose woods these are, I think I know, right? You read it rhetorically um, but carry the music because that's what gives the poetry such a power. So you'd read it, whose woods these are I think I know, his house is in the village though, he will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. Do you see how I ran on in that third line to the fourth? You don't, he will not see me stopping here, pause. You don't do that. That's called an enjambment, you run over. You just read rhetorically. Because the poet, like a musician, knows exactly what he's doing. He's controlling his lines the way a musician does. He'll run on, he'll pause. Um, my little horse must think it queer to stop. You don't stop there. To stop without a farmhouse near between... Um, so, for example, when you, the, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep. There's a, there's a good pause there. There's a comma. But I have promises to keep and miles to go before. So he's pausing on each one of those lines to reinforce them, to stress those words. Deep, keep, sleep. Okay? So when you read poetry, you read it rhetorically, always. Frost taught school in New Hampshire. And he had kids read poems all the time. And the test was whether they would read it rhetorically or not. That was a test of how well they understood the poem. Because if they didn't, they'd show they really misunderstood it. Okay. Love for the poetry. If you didn't know it, you, you'd know now how much I love poetry. <laughs> what an amazing thing it is. Any questions before we go to um, um, Old Man in the Sea? Oh, oh, God! Sorry, Doc. God bless. Sorry. You got it. Sorry, you guys. It slid. It's not a white couch. <laughs> <laughs> if that happened in my house, I'd be jumping at it. All the more reason to redo and have it together. Thank you.
For my opening reflections on Old Man of the Sea, I want to offer this thought um, that takes us again back to poetry, okay? What's at the issue of what's at the issue of the works that we've been reading can get reduced to this phrase, displaced person. Um, but I want to give that phrase a deeper meaning. You know that if I use that phrase to discuss the people in Hemingway's short story, that, sorry, Doc, um, that all of those people lived miserable lives. They all lived in despair. In, a, in each of those three stories, we, we were dealing with moderns um, who had no God to turn to who lived in despair, whether it was made explicit or not. Remember the, the, one, the one patron in the um, clean, well-edited place and tried to hang himself? Um, Margot Bicomber shoots her husband. And in Hills Like White Elephants, we're dealing with abortion. And we don't know if the girl's going to carry the child or not. So we're in a very dark world. Hemingway is dealing with very dark things. I want to come back to this because it's crucial to see the difference between those stories in Old Man on the Sea. I'm so sorry, you guys. So sorry. Um, but I want to I try to enrich this um, notion of a displaced person. Take a look at the, at the uh, poems I gave you tonight. The Blake poem and um, Hausman's The Shropshire Lad. I want to read these two poems because in these two poems we have in a sense the two extremes that I was talking about before. Um, according to Thomas, our emotions have a nature. They're not just wild, chaotic things with no nature. Emotions have a nature. Um, we were given a desire. It's implanted in us by our God. And that desire can find one end in sorrow at things lost. Yes? We lose something dear to us. The natural feeling, the natural emotion is sorrow. Or it can end in joy. When we realize the thing we've loved or desire, we feel a joy. So there are all the emotions in between, between desire and sorrow. There can be fear or anger because we want to stop whatever's threatening us, right? Um, or we can move in hope and hope in towards the thing we want and experience a joy. Interestingly, the one emotion that both of those trajectories towards sorrow or towards joy, the one emotion that both of those trajectories has in common is anger. We call on anger to answer a threat, and we call you know, to something opposing us. We call on anger to help us achieve the joy. But those are our two ends, a joy, a joy and a sorrow, okay? Now keep those in mind as I read these two poems. Blake's Sunflower. A sunflower weary of time who countest the steps of the sun seeking after that sweet golden climb where the traveler's journey is done. Where the youth pined away with desire and the pale virgins shrouded in snow arise from their graves and aspire where my sunflower wishes to go. Shropshire Land by Hausman. 
Into my heart an air that kills from yon far country blows. What are those blue remembered hills? What spires? What farms are those? That is the land of lost content. I see it shining plain. The happy highway where I went and cannot come again. Um, Cheslav Miwash, the Nobel Prize winner, had this to say about our unconscious. It's close to what Jung, not Freud, it's close to what Jung said. In our deepest convictions reaching into the very depths of our being, we deserve to live forever. That's what every one of us longs for. We experience our transitoriness and mortality as an act of violence perpetrated against us. Only paradise is authentic, the world is inauthentic, and only temporary. That is why the story of the fall speaks to us so emotionally, as if summoning an old truth from our slumbering memory. The two fields, the two terrains of our being, are looking back to something lost and something forward um, we haven't attained yet. That's where we live. So in that sense, we're displaced people. We've lost Eden, and we long for paradise. Okay? Now remember, this is close to what we talked about before when I mentioned St. Augustine when we were doing Dante. I'm talking about the city. St. Um, Augustine said there are two cities, the city of God, the New Jerusalem, the city of man. And generally that city is pulling us towards hell. But in between those two cities is what he called the peregrine city. The peregrine, pilgrimage. That was an image of the church in pilgrimage. And I can remember saying to you so clearly, if ever we think we finally found ourselves in here and we're settled, we're deceiving ourselves because this is not our home. Our home is el elsewhere. So they're always in us some discontent, some suffering. There are moments of joy, there are moments of sorrow, but we exist in this in-between place, okay? In Hemingway's world, God's taken away. In place of it is this world that promises everything and can't deliver on it. So it leaves these people in despair, okay? This is, Louise Callan had this to say in a, in a collection of her um, essays on the lyric. Um, those two ends define our human experience. They leave, however, a perplexing and unanswered question. Does the lyric, we're talking about poetry or literature, for something lost or something never found? Where are we? Throughout its history run the two strains. The blue remembered hills, that's from Hausman's poem, remember? Or um, the flower turning towards the sun. Um, the pale virgin shrouded in snow arise from the graves and aspire where the, my sunflower wishes to go. So where, where are we with respect to these two states, okay? This longing for completion, to, be, to exist in a state of bliss or joy, that's our hope, or to return to a state we've lost. And if you remember, that those were exactly the two states in Hodden's poem, Horea Canonica, looking back to Eden, forward to the New Jerusalem. 
And as I said at the beginning of the class, in some sense you can say that that describes the conservative wanting to hold on to what he's got and go back to hold on to it or look forward. All of us struggle between those two states. Okay? So I want to ask these questions about um, old man and then I'd like to look at the text. But I, but I, hope, it's, I hope it's clear right now that Hemingway is dealing with a displaced person. St. Augustine was dealing with a displaced person. That displaced person is at the center of Christianity. Um, we know that what, what determines the outcome for us is the place we give the cross, whether we're there with Christ or trying to get around it. But that's our call. So um, there's all, all human beings since the beginning of time, since the loss of paradise, has put people in this state. We're displaced. We lost paradise. We're struggling to recover something lost. Or we want to go on to something we haven't attained yet. Those are the two poles of our existence, okay? Here are some of my questions on Hemingway. Faulkner said, an old man Hemingway discovered God. Why did he say that? It's pretty clear that in the stories we read, there was no God. And yet he said, in this story there is. So make sense of that. The big question that I want to ask that I want to come to shortly after we've gone through some of the passages is, what does going out too far mean? Because um, Santiago says that a number of times. He's gone out too far. He's gone where people have not gone before. It's like the boy in Birches, yes? He's doing what the kids aren't doing. He's going to the top of Birches and swinging them down. Um, what does that mean exactly? Can we find moments in our ordinary lives that we would define in those terms? That whatever we're doing cannot be explained by ordinary social conventions. Success, have all the money you want, be settled, think you've got everything you want, and you still have moments when you feel like the floor has dropped out from underneath you and having all those things is not going to answer that hole. But we still carry around this sense of something, wanting something more. So no matter how successful we are, no matter how wealthy we are, no matter how seldom we are, there is this... Um, all, I've been saying, all art is an attempt to help us move us closer to recover some sense of that. I want to take a minute with this before we go on to old man, but I'll ask the question and come back to it. In all of the stories we read, Hemingway focuses on wounds, death, despair, and they all imply an honor code. That Remember the word that, um, performing under, um, um, under, under difficult circumstances, um, showing a grace when things are not easy. Okay, that was Hemingway's ideal for a man to um, show his dignity th that he could hold on and show something when things were, whether it was in a bull ring or a fight, you know, baseball player DiMaggio, somebody holding up under pressure. Okay. Um, in every one of those stories, the story focuses on a wound. It's intense. There's nothing ordinary going on, practically. He doesn't focus on, as he does in, in, in Old Man and Sea, you can't read 20 pages without feeling like you've been 
taught how to run a ship. What to do with the rope, what to do with the mast, how to lay it down, what to do at the angle of the line, right? We've got a thousand details and he, he is exacting in his description of every one of them. He's doing, as a writer, what Santiago is doing as a fisherman. He's being absolutely exact. If you look at his short stories, he does none of that. They're all focused on an awful moment. Um, I want to come back to that because I want to take a minute before we go on. Um, how do we look at Santiago's ordeal? How is what's going on there different from what's going on with these other questions? Um, and if Hemingway is dealing with displaced people, as he is, what's the difference between San Diego, Santiago as a displaced person? He loses everything. In fact, the story begins with everybody shaming him. He's gone, what is it, 84 days without a catch? The father of the boy wants the boy to have nothing to do with him. It's bad luck. He's a curse. You can't be more displaced. Everybody looks down on him. But so if Hemingway is giving us an image again of this displaced person, what's the difference between his image of Santiago and these other characters in the story? But let me return to that story before we go to the um, old man. Why does Hemingway, what does it say about Hemingway's honor code that every one of those short stories we read, which, which I think are his best short stories, why everyone focused intensely on an ugly thing? a bad thing, um, a wound, a death, hanging, possible abortion, right? Every, the action focuses on those, that's what defines the action, right, in every one of them. What does that say about Hemingway's sense of the honor code that he lives by, that men, that men dignify themselves by the way they deal with difficult circumstances, bullring, DiMaggio playing baseball, the couple with the question, doesn't matter, Macomber hunting. What does it say about Hemingway's honor code that every one of those focuses so intensely, so dramatically on moments like that? Because I think in Old Man of the Sea he's doing something different, but I want to wait on that. What, what, what does that tell us about his honor code? Anybody? Thoughts on that? That all the men in those stories live by an honor code, that it's the dignity they show, or, you know, the, the young kid in um, Hills Like White Owl is a jerk. I mean, there's nothing good to say about him. The woman is trying to struggle with having a child. She's struggling, the, the man isn't. He's, um, the young waiter in Clean, Well-Lighted Place is a jerk. The old waiter has a dignity, you know, that, the, the young waiter slops the drink on the old man's cup. You know, he doesn't care. And he says, why did they save him? Let him die. And Macomber, Macomber is a coward. And then he proves himself. And then his wife shoots him. So we've got an honor code. The wife doesn't meet it. I mean, she kills her husband just, just when her husband does meet it. You know, and she sees she may lose him. So there's this honor code that underlies his story. My question is, why is it that that honor code is defined so exclusively in terms of these really painful moments having to do with wounds or deaths or loss or 
Because I'm going to argue, and everybody will see it, Santiago rises above that. He, he, you can't... There, there's not a detail Emily overlooks in, in that ordeal. We lived that ordeal with Santiago for pages and pages and pages. And that's not what we see in the short stories. So my question is, because I think Emily undergoes a change. So my question is, what is... What does the fact that those short stories so f focuses so exclusively on those moments tell us about his vision of the world, his honor code? Can I have some wine? I think it gives a thought of strength of being able to pursue something at the same time, maybe moving away from something that is not pleasurable to you. So it gives you the strength, basically, to go through life. So we, we do that from when we're very small all the way through, I think, as far as is this right or is it wrong? Am I strong enough to do that? Am I running into this roadblock? I've got to get around that and get there. And I think that it's a pathway with the idea that you have a vision to look forward to something. Anybody else? In the short stories, it seemed to me that things that people were up against were pretty much of their own doing. These were not life and death situations that they were forced into. There could have been good outcomes, but they didn't handle it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Anybody else? This, Mary, you're shaking your head. What? I'm just agreeing with what, all what they said. Yeah. Let me offer this um, as a thought. You know, when we read the Hemingway stories, I made the point that everything in the story means absolutely everything in the story means. If you took a story like Hills Like White Elephants, the elephants, the white elephants, are meaningful. There's something you don't want. The drink, the El Toro. The El, Del Toro the seat of the bull, the railroad tracks to the station coming from going to where. It's a perfect image of the couple. There's nothing in that story that doesn't speak to that action. Clean, well-lighted place. That's, that's an analogy of heaven. The clean, well-lighted, you know, is heaven. I mean, he knows exactly what he's doing. All those things mean. If you look at the story, they're perfect. They're just perfectly written. One of the questions I asked last week is, how can you believe in a God, not or disbelieve in a God, not believe in God, and write something to such perfection? Because such perfection speaks of perfections in the world. It seems to me one of the things, I think what I'm getting at here, I hope I can be clear. Um, if you live exclusively for yourself under an honor code, you have to do everything well. You have to. And if you, if you don't, what's, your, what's the meaning of your life then? Your life falls apart. 
So it seems to me the pressure on Hemingway, Hemingway, particularly when he was young, was to live under that kind of pressure. He had to, he had to perform bullfights, boxing, fishing, marlins, everything he did. If you live that way because you hold yourself to that kind of expectation, what happens when you fail? I mean, the, the, most, the most important events in your life are going to be wounds, failures. Thanks, Doc. Yes? Those are, going to, those are going to define your life. So when you have too great an ideal of yourself, you're going to try to do everything perfect. And it's going to be hard for you to accept anything not that perfect in yourself or others. So everything, everything that defines the action of those stories turns on that kind of vision of the world, that kind of perfectionist vision. The interesting thing about Santiago is that he struggles, but we're not left in a world crushed by wounds. He survives, he gets by, and we're in a world of these minute details, and you can't find those in those stories. Everything in those stories goes to a tragic moment. It defines everything in them. They're dark, dark moments. They leave you with a sense of, I mean, if, if there's anything light in the moments, it's his disclaimers, the irony about them. But the dramas themselves are really dark, wouldn't you say? I mean, it leaves you with a sense of the displaced person is, this is a despairing world. Go ahead, but yeah. You have, you have the old man and the old man sitting there and he's, he just wants to stay out because there's no, nothing there for him in the world later. Yet the younger man over here has discussed it with that, yet he doesn't want to do anything to help it. And then you have the other waiter which is trying to help the situation and still looking forward to it. So I think there's a lot of vision in there so that one, if you fail, it's a stumbling block versus a failure. So, uh, you were, I don't know if you were here last week when we did that, but, um, I mean, one of, remember one of the important things we have to keep in mind in literature is we can't, talk, we can't talk about what might have been or what will or what the younger waiter would have done as, you know, we're left with a story. And it's, I, I'm agreeing with you, the, the difference between those two waiters is telling. The older waiter is a better man. And Hemingway leaves it that way. But the interesting, one of the interesting things about that older man is what when, when the cafe closes, he goes to a bodego, drinks for a while, and then says, you know, finally goes home. And he has that, I don't have the line, but it must be insomnia, many must have it. You know, he passes it off um, so that implicitly we're made aware that even he can't acknowledge the despair, even though everything about the, sto the story leaves us with that. The, dis the despair is a general condition of the modern world. Wait, wait. Um, the point I want to make is not, I don't want to take away from the older man because I think of the two waiters, he's clearly the better waiter. My, f my point is that all of those stories at their center is a dark moment. In, in Clean Whittle Lighted Place, it's, he says quite clearly, if I had, that the despair is everywhere. Hemingway's defining, we're in a bar where people drink. One guy's tried to commit suicide. The younger waiter doesn't give a, you know. The older waiter has something for him. But the point of the story, clean, well-lighted place, there is no God, there is no heaven. They've got a bar. And what defines the action 
is not the specific characters they play a role in. The action is despair, the, the loss of the clean well added place. This, it's like what to make of a diminished thing. That the modern world has left us in this with a despair, this sense of loss. Those three stories are dark in that sense, whatever we make of the care. Um, Francis McComber, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Redeems himself. You know, he, he, he shows, a, the bull is on him. He's not moving. He's learned, he's learned to face death. He's overcome his fears. You can't take that away. But then his wife shoots him. So whatever we say about the good in any of these stories, because it is there, what's at the center of those stories is something dark. That's a reflection of Hemingway's view. And the reason I want to just stress that tonight is because in Old Man of the Sea, we're seeing a different Hemingway. It's what led Faulkner to say he discovered God. There's things different about this story, and I just want to call everybody's attention back to those stories that we did so that everybody can see the contrast more clearly. Okay. I want to do one more thing and then I want to start the story. Some of the most important um, themes in Hemingway, Old Man. There are two communities. If you look at my notes, it's on page two. The, my notes today, the, on the, the outline for our class. Class three, yeah. Second page at the bottom. You don't have to have it, I'm just... There are two communities involved in this story and it's important to see that context. Um, Santiago comes from a small village. It's communal, it's agrarian. Um, it's not a mercantile United States. We're in Cuba, close to Havana. Um, the boy brings um, things to um, Manolin. The boy brings things to Santiago. The Martin, who owns the cafe, gives him food. Santiago makes a point of saying he's really good to us. We should. He wants to pay him back. And Perico owns the bodega, and he gives Santiago newspaper so he can keep up with baseball. I mean, really, truly, these are little details, but you can't forget them. Everything in Hemingway counts. Everything. He's showing us that Santiago comes from this very helpful community, and the boy is at the center of it. And the, the boy goes around saying, I should have been more thoughtful. I wish I had done that. And everything he does is in perfect courtesy. He, he cannot be careful enough of the old man. He's so good. He's so generous. So Santiago is surrounded by a good community on the one hand, but on the same time he's surrounded by young fishermen who go out to catch fish, who use it for the cod oil that they can deliver so that they can buy motorized boats. So we've got a community of fishermen who fish for profit because they want to get boats that they don't have to row, you know, and who can become wealthy. And if you haven't read the ending, you know that, that um, when Santiago comes back, I'm, I'm wary of going to the ending, but I'm going to do it here. You remember when the tourists come and they look at that skeleton? Remember what the woman says. I mean, look, you're aware of a tourist world here. So Hemingway's context is playing whatever Santiago does against these two communities. One that's kind and generous, the other that's 
self-centered, self-seeking, mercantile, entrepreneurial, progressive. Um, remember the image of the sea because we've seen it countless times in the Odyssey, the Divine Comedy. Tempest, Shakespeare's The Tempest, Moby Dick. Remember, the sea has always been an image of something indefinite. It's dangerous. It, it's the terrain where man undergoes a trial to prove himself, like the Odyssey. It's where you go to discover who you are. And San Diego goes out beyond the other men. That, I want to come back to that because that's so crucial. But the sea is an image of grace and trial. It's where man can grow in self-knowledge. It's where he learns to find out who he is by the trials that he undergoes. Um, it's always a day. Remember, the sea is not our home. Land is our home. But the sea is an image of that metaphorical or, yeah, metaphorical space into which we go to find out who we are. The Odyssey, Dante, remember when he um, starts the Paradiso, he describes himself in terms of being on a ship and going to sea and saying, be wary, don't go on with me the rest of the journey unless you've got faith because the journey will be too dangerous. He's going to go into areas of grace which will turn people away. So he says, turn back. You don't have courage. And he likens the rest of his voyage to a voyage at sea. Moby Dick. Ahab hates the sea. He wants to control it. Compare Santiago with Moby Dick, or with, sorry, Ahab. Ahab, remember the Puritans in, that, in the Pequot want, it's, it's a voyage of violating, of raping, of killing in order to become more wealthy. And we saw um, Melville's treatment of the Christian, of a, of a Christian community, the New England Protestant world, how much it was given to wealth, comfort, security, those things. Um, Ahab hated the sea. Um, he brought a violence to it. Santiago sees the sea as feminine, it's beautiful, but it's also treacherous. But it's there where he meets his brothers, what he calls his brothers. So there's an affinity between him and the sea. He says, about the marlin. I will kill you, but I love you. And remember when he describes um, um, Manolin and him catching the, the um, marlin, the, t the pair, and getting the female pair, he said the two of them clubbed it as quickly as they could because they wanted that death to be quick. They didn't want the feminine to suffer. So they both apologized. The boy Apologize. We're going to see the same thing in Faulkner um, when, um, when the boy kills a deer. He acknowledges the spirits of nature. So there's a very different attitude um, between, say, Ahab and that Puritan response to nature and Santiago. Um, and remember, his wife was very Catholic. There's images of Mary in the shadow or in the, the cottage. Um, she, um, she's dead. Some of the major themes, man against nature. It's a Darwinian world. What moves everything in it is self-preservation. The birds kill the fish, the fish kill each other. Um, at times, San Diego says, the animals are superior to humans. These animals can do extraordinary things. Humans can't approach them. 
I mean, truly, I mean, if, you, if you've ever watched a bird flip, I mean, we've got birds in our backyard, if you ever watch a bird go from one place to another in lightning speed and land on a branch, I look at it sometimes and I just think, holy cow, how do they do that? We're babysitting Amy's dog right now and I'm amazed to watch the dog lie down. We put two pillows next to our bed. He knows exactly where to go. I mean, he doesn't go so far that his head bumps into the thing or, you know, his, he knows exactly where, how did he do that? Animals have this instinctive capacity to do amazing things. Um, sports, baseball is an analogy. Um, the analogy to what Santiago do is what the <laughs> New York Yankees with Joe DiMaggio did. You know, the Joe DiMaggio could concentrate so well that he could hit the ball better than... And remember, one of the things that Santiago says is, luck is better but I always want to be exact. That is, that is, for him, it's an art. Everything he does has to be exact. Just like a poet. He has to, Hemingway knew exactly what he was doing. He has to be absolutely precise. Think about that. Could Hemingway have written these stories if he hadn't been exact with every one of his words? He said to his publisher about um, Old Man of the Sea when he was writing, he said, he said I, in Old Man of the Sea, I've done what I've tried to do all my life. I've tried to make everything the, the way he uses simple descriptive terms. And he never, he never explains things. He just describes things and lets us try to understand them. Can you imagine him writing a story without being exact in every one of his words? Um, so there are these analogies between what Santiago does in baseball and even poetry. The theme of the teacher and a student Santiago is a mentor. He tutors. The boy is mentoring. We see nothing close to that, nothing close to that in Hemingway's short stories. In this story, we're watching an old man teach a boy, so he's initiating him into a way of life. This boy is like the boy in Faulkner's Birches, or sorry, Frost, Frost Birches. This boy will not be like other boys. This boy, his father doesn't let him carry things. His father doesn't want him to do all the things that Santiago is teaching him to do. Santiago is teaching him to do things that will make him unlike other kids. So this boy, our, our assumption is, for all his behavior, the way he takes care, he will grow up carrying Santiago with him. And the theme of a calling, theme of a calling, Remember that's, there's that passage when he says to the fish, this is why I was born. Does a poet, did Hemingway reach a point in his writing, particularly this book, when he said, or I would think long before, did he reach a point where he said, this is my calling, this is what I have to do. And I, I want to underline that. San Diego's a fisherman. I mean, so, so, I think in our world, so many of us are raised to demean ourselves because we don't do what other people do. We don't have their money, we don't have their wealth, we don't have all their things, and we think somehow we're not good. Santiago is a fisherman, he has a calling. How many people have callings doing the simplest things? Working around a house, a carpenter, a carpenter. How many of us have a calling doing very simple things that we love. So at the center of this story is the nature of a calling. That he almost discovers that calling when he went out too far. 
and learn to find out more about himself. Okay. Those are some of the major themes here of, um, of uh, Old Man. So, any questions before we turn to the book? I want to I want to look at some of the passages with you, but. How many of them, just to go another step further, how many of them imply Christ? At the end of the book, I think you'll find it hard watching um, Santiago carry the mast and the skeleton away without seeing the stations of the cross. That he's broken, absolutely broken, and has to keep going. Or even during the journey when he's broken and has to keep going. Um, that there are intimations of Christ-like things towards the end of the story. We don't get anything close to that in those short stories that he wrote. This is a very, very, very different Hemingway. Any comments or questions before we... I promise I won't spill this one. I won't put it on the chair. <laughs> well, when he was carrying that mask by himself, because he always had the boy to help him. That reminded me of the wood of the cross. And then yes. he fell. <laughs> yeah. And he had to lay in the street. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You go ahead. You go ahead. By the way, you always know that that clock is always fast. <laughs> it is. It's by real time. It's ten. I've got twenty minutes in which to accomplish what I can't accomplish in twenty minutes. That clock is always ten minutes fast. That's to help you out. I always carry Bob. You know, you know how who's it? Pinocchio or yeah, Pinocchio carries Jiminy Cricket. Bob is my Jiminy Cricket. I've always got. What time is it? What time is it? What time is it? Any questions or comments before we look at the book? Okay, you know the book is divided into f five days. Um, I want to get through two of the days. Just I want to read through some of the passages just to get us into the book. And I want to make one thing clear. I've, I've read some criticism on this. I've, I, I don't spend much time doing this. I don't have the time, but in some of the criticism I've seen, people describe Santiago's voice as going into the Gulf Coast, inland, into the Gulf. They say going into the Gulf Coast. Um, I think it's pretty clear that he's going, remember when he talks about um, going over that um, part of the um, sea where it drops off suddenly and all the fish gather. I think that's, if you, look, oh, if you look at the map I gave you, you'll see where that point occurs. I think Santiago is going out to sea because the descriptions of him are always going north and east. And if you picture Hemingway going for days, three or four days, into the Gulf Coast, he would see the coastline, the, the southern coast of America. He's going out to sea, and he goes out so far that when he looks back, he can't see Havana. So in, when he says going out too far, we know he's out in, he's in this, in, in this little skiff. And um, he can't see the shoreline anymore. He's gone out into the ocean. Is he in the Gulf of Mexico? No, that's what I'm saying. It's not the Gulf. And I think some 
some critics describe him as going into the Gulf of Mexico. He's in the Gulf Stream that goes up the coastline. If you watch the Gulf Stream, it goes in the Atlantic, it goes up north on the East Coast. Santiago is in that Gulf Stream but going out to sea. So he gets farther and here, farther and farther away from land, farther and farther from social conventions. We are getting close to Christ in his human nature, going to the depths of our nature, facing things. You know, I mean, he's on the cross and going, forgive them, why are you doing this? He's crying tears of blood in the garden. I mean, and um, saying thy will. I mean, he, he's clearly now entered into, um, how does he put it? What's the Lord's Prayer? And lead us not into temptation. That can't just mean ordinary temptations. I don't think. I think at the end of the prayer when we say that, and lead us not into temptation, I think what we mean is not facing something like what Christ faced. Um, because he's facing really dark things then. <clears throat> so Santiago. We're to understand metaphorically that he goes out, he's getting farther and farther from those things that are known, those things that we hold on to. He's trying to hold on to everything he, he knows as he enters what's the unknown, what he's going to face. Okay, let's look at the book. No questions or comments? I think I did years ago. Uh, it just reminds me of it in that they went way too far out, but they caught all the fish. That's where the fish were. Did they bring it back? Well, no, the, the, the coolers broke, and then as they, and as they headed back, they hit the storm. It was a true storm. It was a true storm. Just a couple of things here. Let's go through the book quickly and to get us finally in the book. In the very beginning, first page, he was an old man who fished alone in a skiff in the Gulf Stream and he had gone 84 days now without taking a fish. In the first 40 days, a boy had been with him, but after 40 days without a fish, the boy's parents had told him that the old man was now definitely and finally Salao, which is the worst form of unlucky. It's a curse. Go down. The sail was patched with flour sacks and furled. It looked like the flag of permanent defeat. So everything about the voyage right now is unpromising. Um, Going over, page 10, everything about him was old except his eyes, and they were the same color as the sea and were cheerful and undefeated. There is in man, no matter whatever the world presents to us, no matter how much it crushes us, this is the Iliad. I'm not kidding about that, the honor code. Remember that the great truth of the Iliad is that most men define themselves by their booty, by their accomplishments, what they gain. Achilles is the one who makes us aware that there's, he said, such honor is a thing I need not. I don't want that honor. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. 
he came to a point finally of realizing there's some inherent dignity in man. What's at the center of this story that differentiates it from the other stories is this sense of a transcendent dignity in man. Santiago has it. He's a, he's a fisherman. He's not a wealthy entrepreneur. He comes from a village. What he did is not going to be recognized by anybody except the reader. Um, the same color as the sea and we're cheerful and undefeated. Um, the boy keeps um, wanting to serve him and it's funny on a page 11 when the boy offers help um, um, why not the old man says between fishermen there's this secret language they have that the two of them have shared these experiences that the boy has not shared with his parents with his father um, and they make a lot of that um, um, in the in the first 20 pages or so Hemingway makes a big deal of the fact that the two of them live in fictions there's this hope that they will do all this thing or this is what's going to be done or this is how to do it and, and he uses the word it's a fiction they are they live in the hope it's like you're coming they live in the hope that they will do these things it's what sustains them when they're you know the boy's parents don't want him around Santiago Santiago's alone um, on page 13 the old man looked at him with his sunburnt confident loving eyes if you were my boy I'd take you out and gamble he said but you are your father's and your mother's and you are in a lucky boat the boy asked to get the car and sardines and he goes off um, you know that he lives in a ranchack um, hut um, the boy brings him food and tells him that the cafe owner um, gave it to him um, when he sleeps he remember he sleeps dreaming of lions on the beach let me take a minute with that anybody make what do you make of that um, in fact it, he makes a point when he wakes up he wants to go back and sleep and pick up in that dream so he's not dreaming about his unlucky life 80 you know 84 days with nothing that's a long time to go without anything so we're not talking about entrepreneurs and you know in America this this guy has gone without anything but when he goes to sleep he, he wants to dream this dream that he has in Africa of lions on the beach what do you all make of that anything Bob go ahead uh, I, I really couldn't get too much out of it other than it was someplace different than where he would it's currently at so it's more of a peaceful fulfilling with lions well, <laughs> yeah but the lion is part of the excitement of being there I yeah. Well, it was back when he was strong. Yeah. When he was so, wild wrestling, it was strong. And he identified with the strength of the lion. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Because it really is important to see that he's in failing age. Most of us, most of us here should be somewhat aware of that. <laughs> I've got to have a talk with my son. We're going to have a, I think, walk tomorrow. I, one of the, I shouldn't do this, but one of the things I've got to say to him is I, I just, I, I am so appalled when I look back at my arrogance as a young man. It just appalls, I'm not kidding. It just appalls me. It just appalls me. <laughs> but one of the things you learn in old age is, you know, you grew up thinking there's nothing you can't handle. 
I mean, really, I, and, and the arrogance of it in myself, it just, I, I shuddered it, but you, you, it's, and I don't think it was anything conscious, it's just the spirit. I mean, you go, you deal with what they give you and you do well, and I mean, one of the ironies of old age is you can't stop it from coming on. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> you, you can't bend down. Um, you know, you lose your balance. You can't hold on to a memory for... And there's almost, there's so little you can do about it. It's just a strange, strange state. And I think it's really important to, to remember that Santiago's there. He's older. He's weaker. So the man we see struggling on the ship, the skiff, is not the man he was, you know, 25 years earlier. Um, go to, um, on 24, it's where he talks about this. Um, the old boy, the young boy says to the old man, sleep well. I mean, he's such a tender kid. He was asleep in a short time and he dreamed of Africa when he was a boy in the long golden beaches and the white beaches, so white they hurt your eyes. And he you know, the lions playing up and down the... Um, he woke up to go get the boy and then um, on 28 he goes out, page 28. By the way, um, Tim, any addition will do. I mean, the one I've got is the, um, I think it's, what is it? Is the Scribner, um, but any... I, if you have a different edition, just go by days. But if you happen to have this one, it'll help because it has the page number. Sometimes some would speak in a boat, but most of the boats were silent except for the dip of the oars. They spread apart after they were out of the mouth of the harbor and each one headed for part of the ocean where he hoped to find fish. The old man knew he was going far out and he left the smell of the land behind and rode out into the clean early morning smell of the ocean. This is Hemingway at his best. It's just simple descriptive sentences. He's not explaining anything. He's just putting in our senses and showing us the world. We've got to make sense of it ourselves. Um, as he rode out over the part of the ocean that the fishermen called the Great Well because there was a sudden deep of 700 fathoms where all sorts of fish... If you look at the map I've given, you'll see that point where it drops off. Um, they spoke of her as a contestant or a place, even as an enemy. This is most of, because this is, these are men carrying on a rivalry like Ahab. So it's an enemy. They have to defeat her. This is on page 30. They spoke of her as a contestant or a place or even an enemy. But the old man always thought of her as feminine and as something that gave or withheld great favors. And as she did wild or wicked things because she could not help them. The moon affects her as it does a woman, he thought. Go down, he was letting the current do a third of the work, and as it started to be light, he saw he was already further out than he'd hoped to be this hour. Um, so he goes farther and farther out, and it's interesting to see the descriptions of the lines going down. So they're going deep. Um, page 32, he thought, I keep them with precision, only I have no luck anymore. But who knows, maybe today, even Every day is a new day. It's better to be lucky, but I would rather be exact than when luck comes, you're ready. If you don't pay attention to details, what you're doing, when luck comes, will you be able to take advantage of it? If you're careful about things, when a moment is given to you, you'll seize it. 
and it will offer something, um, which is exactly what happens here. Uh, Sorry. Yes. Yes. That to me was really detailed. Yes. Yes. Just being out fishing. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you. Yeah. Um. Um. He sees a man of war and is disgusted by it. He observes the birds dipping down and being ineffectual and catching the fish because the fish are too. But we're given a Darwin a very clear. Um, description of a Darwinian world. Everything is predatory. One thing feeds on another. The whole world is that way. Men feed another. It's a central theme because men use each other. Women play into that. What happens with Santiago is he's going to he's going to capture and overcome this Marlin but he's going to come away with nothing. So it's, it's a stark contrast to a world in which people measure themselves by their success, their material successes. Um, go over, I'm gonna, um, I wanna bring us to the point where he catches on on page 41. Um, um, on page 40 he says, he loves baseball, he thinks about baseball all the time. He loves heroes, the boy does too. Now is no time to think of baseball, top of page 40, he thought. Now is the time to think of only one thing, that which I was born for. There might be a big one around that school, he thought. It's, it's, I'd love this part of the book. We've watched, I, every once in a while I'll check on, I shouldn't be doing this. Once in a while I'll check on with the baseball to see what's going on in the playoffs. I am so amazed at the difference between a baseball player who lets somebody get under his skin and loses concentration. And a baseball player who's in that game who does not let anything keep him from concentrating on what he's doing. Because the baseball players who are there are the ones who don't let those other things come in. They're just so focused on what they're doing. Now think about the importance of that for a calling. For any of us, if you're a carpenter, if you're a wife raising a family, you know, to, to stay focused on what's, and to not let Things get it, so you lose it. Um, he's saying, because he loves baseball, and he's, he's about ready to face an ordeal. He can't let himself think about those things. He puts his mind back on what he's doing. If he were a carpenter, I can't, I can't believe Joseph didn't do this with Christ. Pay attention. I, I think I've showed you that statue, haven't I, that I love so much? The Bernadetta statue. I've shown you, it's Mary going like this. She's here with Christ, and Christ is looking at her, focused on her, and you know she's teaching him. And she's got to be teaching him the law. And he's got to be absolutely attentive. This is Christ, the Son, learning the law. Imagine Mary um, in that role. He can't let things distract him. Um, now is the time to think of baseball, he thought. Now is the time to think of only one thing, that which I was born for. There might be a big one around that school, he thought. He can't let it go. Go down, he could not see the green of the shore now, but only the tops of the blue hills. So um, Havana is slowly disappearing. And then at the top of um, 
page 41. The sun was hot now and the old man felt it on the back of his neck, felt the sweat trickle down on his back as he rode. I could just drift, he thought, and sleep and put a, um, a bite of line around my toe to wake. But today is 85 days and I should fish the day well. He's failed 85 times. He cannot, he cannot allow anything to pass. I, I could just drift, but today is 85 days and I should fish the day well. Just then, watching his lines, he saw one of the projecting green sticks dip sharply. Yes, he said, yes, yes. Um, and he catches the marlin. Go down this far out. He must be huge in this month. He thought, eat them fish, eat them, please eat them. He asked Christ, he, he says, go down on the next page, 42. He can't have gone. You know, the, the, the marlin nibbles and goes away and nibbles and he's going, Christ, make him eat it, make him eat it, eat it, eat it. And he even says, I'll promise to do a um, pilgrimage. If you, he's doing everything he can to, to get this. And it's, it's wonderful. I mean, Bob's comment about the tech, you know, the, because I, I, I would never know, that, unless you're a fisherman, he knows exactly when to move. He's got to tug it a little bit because he knows it's not quite lodged and the guy is nibbling, or the, the marlin is nibbling. So it's only when he has it that he can finally jerk on it and catch him. And we've got all these intermediate steps where he's, you know, come back. It's around again. Is he going to get it? No, he's, and he said, come back, come back. And he finally does. And then it's at this point, you know, that the marlin takes him out to sea beyond anything he's ever done before. And that's where we'll pick up next week. But um, this is the setting for the ordeal that's about to take place. Let me stop. Any questions before we stop for the night? He's going to have some wonderful lines after this, um, particularly the line where he's, this is page 58. He's my brother. Three things, my brother, the fish, two hands. It's like he's suddenly in contact with his whole body. He can't take his body for granted, like a modern intellectual. He cannot. Without his body, he couldn't, he couldn't do. He wouldn't have the subtlety, the feel. He's suddenly in touch with himself in a complete way in which he's probably never been in his life. So this is a defining moment. He's coming to something, some kind of self-knowledge he's not had before. So what's happening is just not catching a fish. <laughs> a lot is going on here. So any comments or on this or the difference between this and the church stories or what's going on? I think the um, something that that is very different for me is that you know that nice group of people that support that are supporting the boy. And, the guy from the you know from the restaurant. Yep. You, know, you see you see that kindness that you don't see in any yep. other, you know, yep. other Yeah, and it's uniform. I mean, in the waiter, you know, you know, clean, well-lighted place. One of the waiters is a decent man. The other one, but here there's a genuine community of people who are uniformly. Parents aren't very kind, but but it, it really is. Like they look out for each other. Well, they're not very kind because they're trying to see their boy. But the boy is kind. Yeah. Very, you know, yes. He's not taking. Yes. Yes. Yet. Yes. It's amazing how thoughtfully he goes out of his way. Oh, he doesn't grumble. He doesn't complain because San Diego never asks him to do anything. He just keeps offering freely on his own. Wonderful kid. Well, children that age, 
going there. The youth have very little respect. But he's been with him since he was five years old. So well, he's, he knows he's like him. his grandpa. You know? He's like grandpa. But Cuba, I mean, everybody who's ever traveled to Cuba says the people there are one of the most wonderful people in the world. Ever. They have that sort of life even though Castro and the government, but let me ask a simple question because I because we're going to get into the depths when we come back. We're going to look at how did you guys find this? I mean, how did you enjoy? I mean, you you know, we did Moby Dick, we did Brothers. This is a twenty-page work compared to. So how are you finding this in Hemingway style? I'm, I'm asking, did you enjoy it? Are you enjoying it? Or how are you finding it? What's your response? I love it. I think it's a great break from the, from the epic. <laughs> <laughs> and Hemingway is so easy to read. Yep. Really yep. Just, you know, and, yep. And, and it's just, you don't fall asleep reading it. It's just, I, I think it's a, the spacing is perfect. From yeah. to this. Yeah. Yeah. I like that idea of him writing that. So he he has that sufficient knowledge also. Oh yeah. 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 He's in, yeah. Like Dr. Bob said, he's in the boat. Yeah. Everywhere. He did marlin fishing a lot in Cuba. He, in fact, he he lived in Cuba for a while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because you know he puts the things around his stoves around his. You know you need to have seen somebody do that. You know that's. That's Every description, leaning on the bow, pulling back, yeah. trying to trying to get a sack underneath the line when it was taut on. I mean, he doesn't miss a thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, everything is just yeah. fine detail. You yeah. Know, you just feel the burning. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Yeah. My dad loved to fish, and this was his favorite book in the world. Oh, yeah. And so, it, I, I think part of my enjoyment is seeing it through his eyes. Yeah. Going to rename you Manolin. Let's stop. Um, next week. Wait, just to wait. So, I, I said we're going to do um, Billy Bud. I, I'm going to do this. We're going to do Billy Bud in one day. I am not going to spend a lot of time with that. Do so, we need to buy it or read it? Well, it's up to you guys. It's up to you guys if you want to buy it and read it. I, I want to. I want to give you that because it's Melville writing much later and in the modern world, but it's giving us something he doesn't give us in Moby Dick, and I don't want to give that away. But I think it's so essential because it comes on the threshold when you know Hemingway is born and he will start writing shortly. We're at that period. What Melville does with Billy Buddy is so different from what he did in Moby Dick, and I just want you to have that. So I'm not going to go through it the way we do most book, whether you read it or not. I'm going to go through it. Um, if you do pick it up, I would suggest you do. If you if you find it too hard to read, go and read the last five or six chapters, because the whole of the book, what happens that's really important, takes place there. What happens in in Billy Budd, if you remember this, and some of you may not, remember when you do Moby Dick and we had the still still kilt episode. Do you remember the still kilt episode? Yeah. What happened? Yeah. Uh. Quiz time. Fish came up and got it. Yep. So it saved him. Good, good for you. Still remember the first mate was envious of Steelkilt. Oh. Because he was so it was like a natural Adam Kim. So one of this natural Adam. And does everything he can to insult him. 
to in, uh, humiliate him and Billy um, strikes at him in defense of himself and he kills him without intending to kill him. And um, Captain Veer, Truth Veer, Captain Veer, has to execute him. It's at a time of war, he can't let the thing go. So even though he doesn't want to see Billy executed, so the whole thing moves towards, and I want to touch on that because it's so subtle, and in my experience of teaching this work, people divide down on it, black-white. So I'll be interested to see what you guys say about it. So we'll finish, try to finish, um, we will finish um, Old Man of the Sea next week, and we'll spend one day on Billy Budd, and then we start, we start the short story, The Women. Eudora Welty and other, I'll send you. What should we buy? Sorry? What should we walk by to start reading? For the women? For the women? I, I'm going to send you the stories, but if. Oh, you're going to send okay. it. You can buy the short stories of Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty collections. You can buy those. I will send you the stories we'll read, like I did with Hemingway, so. Okay, you guys all have a good week, and I'll see you in a week.